Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Well, hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast coming at you from beautiful Seattle, Washington, and our home on the web at thehappymd.com. We've got a super high level management discussion, a set of skills that I've been teaching our doctors for a long time. We're going to get a completely different perspective from Dr. Umbreen Nahal, MD, MPH. Uh, she's a former CMO. Somebody has written a $1.8 billion piece of legislation inside the government, got all sorts of leadership experience. And what we're going to do today is talk about basically how to negotiate with non-physician managers when you're the only doctor in the room. How do you have to alter the way that you speak away from diagnose and treat, give orders and expect compliance like you would in your practice in order to get some traction inside the institution? And what I want to start out with is, Dr. Nahal, you have transitioned from being a practicing pediatrician for 10 years to now fulfilling all sorts of senior leadership roles, CMO in the government, all that kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you've learned about the different ways doctors and managers communicate. Yeah, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and very excited about this conversation we're going to have. I think that uh, one thing is that we in medical school often compete with each other pretty overtly, right? We compare GPAs, we compare scores. There's sort of the reviewer to, you know, perspective or attitude. You go to a conference, we kind of very directly challenge each other. And one of the things I've noticed in business is uh, based on relationships. So people might disagree, but like one of the things they teach you in business school is yes and, right? I agree. So you build, so there's a way that even in the way that you speak, you build relationships and you might have a different opinion, but you do it in a way that doesn't embarrass the other person. And that's something that I think that a lot of doctors are not necessarily coached on or have practice in. You know, like what I love, for instance, doc, uh, Dr. Glaucom Flecken's videos, right? I think we all do. And he has a lot of great skits about, you know, cardiology versus like nephrology going at it. And we all laugh at that. But if you bring that into the boardroom, that's not going to be effective. And in fact, we were talking earlier about how you're walking a fine line if you use that kind of domination language and pimping and those kind of things, the things that you may have learned exquisitely well in your training right. program, because even now, still a lot of training programs are like that. What ends up happening inside the bureaucracy of a large medical institution that is run by managers, non-physician managers, you're likely to get labeled. And so for men, it's going to be the word disruptive. For women, it's going to be the B word. And we all know what that is, right? And, or C and what, word. Or C word. Yeah, even worse. Uh, you're the first person who's ever said that. I love it. So, <laughs> so what I'll tell you is that those things can permanently affect your ability to have a position of influence inside the organization. Once you get that label, it can yeah. be all over. And I've worked with a number of different people as a coach where they had to leave once they got that label because they, they weren't able to be effective anymore. For sure. And actually, I meant the C-R word ending with Y. 
<laughs> but sure, the other one too. Great minds think alike. <laughs> Well, yes, I think that's the key, right? So I think that we are taught how to generate a differential diagnosis and, you know, have these like lengthy rounds and we go, you know, before you can get your peer reviewed article, it takes like six months, right? And MBAs have like very short attention spans. And we were talking about this earlier. You make the distinction between solving a problem versus approaching a dilemma. And so because MBA types are taught to think about problem solving, we're also our mindsets are different, right? So you you start going into like, what are the data and are is this generalizable? And you've already lost them. So there has to be a way to overcome or adjust your original teaching where you need to give all of the information before you get to the point to be able to get to the point first. And often sort of like the executive leader wants to know if the point you're making is something they're interested in, then they want to listen to the rest. So having that flexibility in your communication. Uh, and I mean, I have definitely, so it's, and it's also interesting because in my different roles, as I've you know been in this executive MBA and I've reflected on my own communication, which is both a tremendous asset because I'm, you know, top voice four times, all of these things. But what you don't realize is that you've been rewarded for certain behaviors in certain contexts. And particularly as we've moved to a Zoom world, like, can you read the room? Do you understand the culture? Do you understand the unspoken things and how people are responding to you? Um, and if you can't understand that, that's where like, the, yeah, the label might happen and then it sticks, right? So one example is that when I worked for the state, I used to be in public hearings and I would just have all the information. So I never lost a public hearing because you just couldn't dig out from the data that I brought. But actually that's in some people call that a snow job, right? Like you've just been snowed. And so if I come to a meeting with stacks and stacks of paper, because I've been rewarded for this in the past into a high level business meeting, that's just not how business works. Yep. And, and what you'll find is that's also a function of some people's personality, right? So sure. some person... Some personalities need a lot of data and some time to make a decision. And some personalities get driven crazy by that. They want three bullets in 15 seconds and they can say yes or no to whether or not they want to hear more. Absolutely. In fact, I'm actually teaching this uh, summer at the American Academy of Physician Leaders Conference on giving an elevator speech. So, you know, you are in the elevator with your CEO, a senator. How do you make, you know, you have three floors together. How do you make a point? Right. And one of the things that I teach people when we're talking about getting buy-in for the concept of wellness in regards to a population of physicians is you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that because if your senior leaders don't play a role in co-designing the program, they won't yeah. support it. Right. And so I guess then that's another question, right? So there's like a racy model of like project management, like who's responsible, who's accountable, who needs to be informed who's supportive of it. So I think that's something also to know, yes, you absolutely need buy-in from the senior leadership. How often do you contact them? In what way do you contact them? In what ways do they, are they sending a representative of them? That might be fine, right? That person might have more time to give to the meetings. But I think it really is about really kind of stepping back, being able to have that emotional intelligence to understand what is this person's persona? What are their values? Um, and we, I think we talked about like managing up, know what your boss has to deliver to whom, right? So you might think the CEO is a big boss. The CEO answers to the board, 
right? In, in, a, in a healthy organization, there should be board oversight. Sometimes there's not. You know, and if it's a for-profit organization, they answer to shareholders. If it's a government organization, they answer to a whole bunch of regulatory agencies, right? So knowing kind of being able to think about how, you know, perspective taking, like what do other people, what keeps them up at night? And if you become somebody helpful to them uh, in getting their job done, then now you have more room to talk to them about what, about what you're seeing from your perspective. And I think that's one of the challenges for most clinicians. You're talking about this from a perspective of somebody who's in the room as mm-hmm. a CMO or something like that, where you potentially could build relationships where there would be reciprocation. You scratch, sure. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. But if I'm a clinician and the only person that I'm seeing day in and day out is the manager of my ward or my wing where reciprocation isn't necessarily even possible, that becomes much more difficult to do. So one of the things I want to point out is that what we're having right now is a physician leadership conversation Mm -hmm. that is applicable to every doctor in the institution, but can be more usable for somebody who's in a position of management where you're at least like a quarter time, a 0.25 FTE in some sort of management position. Because it's there where you exercise the five to one ratio, get your uh, regular meetings with the people that are up the chain of command or or at your same level. It's called managing up and across the organizational chart. It's there where you can build those relationships and, and potentially use reciprocation. We were talking about also, and let me just point this out, Doctors actually are more often than not going to be called on the carpet for their abnormal sense of urgency. At least I've yes. seen this, right? <laughs> Absolutely. See, you're a doctor. And what I want you to know is that you have what I would call a universal business skill set, meaning you can take a whole bunch of different strange information and create a unified diagnosis and a treatment plan. And you usually do that on a three to five minute timeline because that's how quickly yeah. you have to see patients. Yeah. So you're going to be the first person in the room that is that is getting anxious, frustrated, <laughs> upset by the fact that you can see what the issue is and nobody's talking about it or doing anything out of it. Mm-hmm. So what I can tell you is that if you storm out, slap the table and accuse people of having manure for brains, <laughs> storm out, that again is one of those things that you can get labeled disruptive for. Now, here's a, yes. tech, here's a technique that we teach. You can't lose your stuff around a manager. It is okay though, to name the emotion that you're having. So let yeah. me give you, let me model this for you. Sure. You know, Dr. Nahal, when you talked about the cost per case here, I got to let you know a whole bunch of frustration and probably even a little bit of anger came up. Mm-hmm. Are you noticing that too, or is it just me? Yeah. That's a very unusual speech pattern for any normal human. But it's a perfectly okay thing to say, name your emotion, don't become it. If you're a doctor who's getting frustrated in a meeting with a manager. So just tuck that in your back pocket. It works. I mean, that's brilliant because exactly because that actually just puts your emotional intelligence on display that in that period of time, you had the self-awareness to know what you were feeling, to name it and to do it in a way that presents it to somebody else where then you're checking in with them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's great. That's a great tip. The other thing I'll say is pick your battles very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) And doctors will pick every one. So don't pick every one. 
That is completely true. And I think one of the things, there was a simulation we did uh, in our um, organizational processes class during my MBA, which I'm doing right now, where you had to convince the CEO and everybody else for some project. And one of the things you do is you actually find out, you have lunch with the administrative assistant for the CEO in the simulation, and you find out who's in the running group together and who lunches together. So like we are social creatures, right? We grew up as a species in tribes. So that has not gone away. And as much as we think that, you know, we might be using our cognition, our highest level of thinking, and as physicians, yeah, we have been, you know, taught, we've been in codes, we've had to run codes, we are trained in how to do that. I mean, we're talking right now at a time when like Silicon Valley Bank just unraveled. And ultimately there's, I mean, we don't have time to go into all of it, but it seems like, I mean, a bank run is essentially where people are losing their SHIT. They're panicking. That actually bank, bank run didn't need to happen if you thought like an ER doc or, you know, a surgeon or even like a family doc, right? I mean, if you were just like, okay, what's, what needs to be done? What is immediate and what is long-term and we're trained that way. But I think understanding that we may have certain types of emotional intelligence that business people may not have, but then they may have certain types of emotional intelligence and working through relationships that we don't have. Yep. And I think that's that's an opportunity for mutual respect, because I think a lot of times you're like, oh, they're just an empty suit, right? And I think that we kind of, as physicians have gotten increasingly moral injury, burnt out, whatever the right word is you just get so ground down that the emotional intelligence you do have, you no longer have the energy to tap into it. Okay, so the way I think about it is that even a broken clock is right twice a day. I don't have to like you. I don't have to respect you. I don't even have to think that you're right. I can think that your, your brain is just a bunch of random electronic signals that make no sense. But even so, you're going to maybe right twice a day. So I'm going to look for those two times a day that you're oh right. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to find that, by, that that time we're aligned, and I'm going to utilize that. <laughs> nice pickup, Chuck. <laughs> Way to go, buddy. I'm not lying. You were right that one time, right? <laughs> right. Right. Now, the challenge is all the doctors out there who listen to us talking about these as communication tactics with yeah. management who feel like even in order to sit in that room, they yeah. have to sell their soul to the devil. The challenge I see it is this. It's one of practicality. 73% the last time I checked of American doctors are employees. That is a contract to fulfill a job description. The job description was not written by you, most likely, and it's there yeah. to serve the business model and the revenue model of your employer. And it is a contract. So mm -hmm. one of the things I always like people to do is think about, okay, you signed a contract for a bill of goods that you didn't have anything to do with creating. Is this a contract that you're still willing to fulfill? So if you're willing to fulfill, then... I would hope that you could muster a sense of wanting to serve the larger organization because your career is dependent upon it at this point in time and play a role in making yeah. it better. If it's a headspace that you can't imagine stepping into, I encourage you to start looking for a new job where the value proposition is better for you. That's why one of the things yeah. we did early on was create a really great job search training. But it's all predicated on the fact that you have to be willing to play the game 
that mm-hmm. it takes to have influence inside yeah. a bureaucracy. Right. And I mean, to build, build off of what you're saying, MIT language or like business language to build off of. <laughs> um, so I think that. Why don't you just say yes and. <laughs> <laughs> yes and. That's, that's They teach you that in improv. Right. But I mean, look, I mean, they say that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. right. And I think doctors have experienced that. I mean, uh, doctors were busily doing our thing at the bedside. And the reason I was at the bedside exclusively for 10 years, not doing any other administrative work um, and just volunteering my time was because I really love patient care. And the reason I entered other roles was I was just like, this does not make sense. This is not delivering the right outcomes. Like the posters on the wall and the actions of managers. So, of course, I was a little naive, be like, oh, maybe the managers just don't understand. I just need to get above them. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I see. <laughs> There's... That's that's just so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I think I was slightly naive, <laughs> which is why now I'm in business school. And I'm like, let me immerse myself in the business world. Let me understand. Well, now that you're there, yeah. you realize and everybody who's listening realizes that there are actually two different playbooks. Mm-hmm. There's the clinical playbook, and then there's the business playbook. Can you say something a little bit about sitting in the gap between those two? Yeah. So I, mean, I think some of it we already covered, but I think that ultimately, you know, so from the business perspective, they say, you know, no margin, no mission, right? right. And if even if you're a nonprofit, you still have to keep the lights on, pay salaries, things right. like that. And but if you look again at SVC, the the Silicon Valley Bank, as soon as they saw trouble, they're like, pull your money and run, right? Well, they gave themselves bonuses. That too. That yes. was their uh, last act as executives was to bonus themselves before they locked the front door. <laughs> right, right. And then I'm in Boston, right? I was here during the marathon bombing. Physicians, first responders, firemen and firewomen, everybody you run into danger, right? Right, And so, I mean, I've had conversations where, you know, if you're a business, you are looking out for number one. And I, I think that's actually, there's there's a New York Times article about um, essentially business exploits doctors and nurses uh, do-gutter incentive, you know, are not incentive, but our instinct, right? It's just instinctual that you just see something wrong, you run towards the code, you run towards whatever, And that shouldn't go away, but I think we tend to shame ourselves for self-care and that needs to go away, right? And we need to not shame each other over that either. So I think that is a a mindset shift that is needed. It is a language shift that is needed, but it is okay to take care of yourself. And it's not because you're selfish, but it's because you can, you know, they say, right, you can't pour from an empty cup. If you are not well, if you are not healthy, if you are not thinking clearly, I know that, I mean, I train pre-work hour restrictions. So I'm that, you know, dinosaur that's like, oh, I can work for 30 hours straight and, you know, no problem, right? It's not true. You are a better physician. You're a better nurse. You're a better physician's assistant if you get sleep. Here's the challenge. And I agree with 100% of what you're saying. The modern American manager inside a healthcare delivery organization counts on that overextension and will not support us trying to take better care of ourselves. And that's the battle that I've been fighting for 12 years. 
mm-hmm. is for the people who understand the gist of the quadruple aim. The mm-hmm. health and the health and well-being of your people will determine the quantity and quality of care that they provide. It cannot be otherwise. Yeah. That is a lesson that has been completely lost on American healthcare in pursuit of the dollar. Well, so then you just have to learn how to make the business case. I mean, I'm not saying I've got it perfect, but there there you instead of kind I think what happens is that we have all this goodwill. We kind of just quietly put up with it as we've been trained with dignity, or maybe we grumble with grumble. But we and I think but you we come, keep showing up. We keep showing up and we also we come at it with indignation sometimes. We come at it with our we've like been stoic and now we're just so ground down, we're coming at it with emotion. And then that is the opposite of what you just modeled for us, where you, you're you not coming at somebody with raw emotion. You are in a conversation, agreed, we already said it's hard to get at, to the table in the first place, but being able to identify the emotion, you know, speak about it almost in the third person, but also think about how can you quantify waste? How can you quantify liability? If there are errors, that's a liability for the hospital, not right? There's there are ways to think about quantifying things and, and to kind of swallow down a little bit of the nausea that you might feel talking numbers. But again, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So you got to be there. One of the things that I find is difficult to do, and one of the conversations that anybody who's listening right now might want to have with one of their managers is. If you were to have a successful wellness program, what would be the benefit they would like to see? Mm-hmm. And the re- and the reason that this is a challenge is there's so many benefits you could choose from. And I have found that almost everybody has a flavor that they like. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if I was to install a wellness program that made a demonstrable difference in the health and well-being of the people, we could expect naturally and automatically for what kind of changes to be measurable in the performance of the organization. Quality, safety, patient satisfaction, mm-hmm. recruitment, retention, and turnover, engage. We can just keep going. And yeah. the challenge is which one of these is your organization looking for? So that as you build a wellness program, you can begin to measure those exact outcomes from the start. And what that does is it helps make what they can see as an expense. Your wellness program Mm -hmm. is initially seen as an expense. They can now begin to see it as an investment because what's the difference between an investment and an expense? It's the return. So let's show them the return that they want. Now, what I just did was talked about metrics to demonstrate Mm -hmm a business case. Yeah. And metrics that are tied to payment, right? So rather, and I think this is where the other thing to keep in mind is that most business people are get part of the reason they get nervous around physicians and clinical leaders of any type is we have authenticity. What are they doing in a hospital? What are we doing in a hospital? Right. I wish they would come to the hospital. (laughs) Well, that too. But I think that don't give up your personal brand, your physician brand, your clinician brand. Don't allow them to label you. Don't allow them to brand you. Stay just keep as much as I think what's happened is that patient satisfaction has been turned into a metric, monetized, and now become something to drive physicians and has taken out the joy of work of your having a relationship with your patient, now all these metrics are in the way. And while they're well-intended and I'm a patient advocate myself and a patient myself, 
unfortunately, the outcome of those processes tends to really dehumanize, I think, both the patient and the physician. So I think that's another kind of you sit back, reflect, okay, these are really annoying. Maybe they're counterproductive. It is what it is, but how can I work with it? And think strategically. Yep. Yep. So just to give some practical takeaways, because that's what we do here is give you some tools. What we're saying is that the conversations that you have up and across the chain of command, up and across the organizational chart are situations where you're off your normal environment. You're outside of your normal environment. It is a different set of thought processes. It's a different way of looking at a medical institution as a business rather than as a place where clinical care is provided. So what I would recommend, and I always recommend this, for whatever reason, and you may recognize this too, Dr. Nahal, is that doctors are resistant to rehearsing conversations. We often act as if we are ourselves improv artists. It's like... (laughs) We're, we're resistant to dialogue, rehearsal, and patient interactions. We don't like checklists or anything like that. True. But I would no, never true. I would never have a conversation where something that's important to you or your practice is at stake with anybody across or above you in the org chart without rehearsing. Rehearsing yeah. what you're going to say and rehearsing what you might say in response to them. Because they communicate differently. You're going to need to leave your emotions at the door. You're going to need to think about a business case. You're going to need to think about the fact that it takes five supportive interactions before you can build trust with another person. Mm -hmm. So if this is the first time you're meeting with this person, you can't expect it to go gangbusters the first time. And you never want to pound the table accusing somebody of having, I'll say it, shit for brains and storm out. Or ulterior motives. I think that, right, you just kind of, whatever your thoughts are about somebody, you know, create an opportunity for them to say yes. I mean, I took a Harvard Law School uh, negotiation course, and that's exactly what you do. You think about what are their interests? What are your interests? What is the, you know, what is the zone of possible agreement? It's called ZOPA. And what is, how can you create new value and how can you divide and share that value? And usually, so, and then I think to your point, if it takes five interactions to build trust, don't wait until the problem happens. Right. Right. Find a way to create relationships. Like, so one thing I did once, albeit with a clinical leader, there was a policy commission annual thing that was happening meeting and I was going to go and I said, oh, would you like me to email you a quick synopsis of what I, of what I hear? And he was like, sure, that'd be great. So I was essentially, you know, customizing like a business, Harvard Business Review style summary for him. Um, and it helped me main, re- retain my knowledge that I got there too. So that there's like simple things you can do to just kind of add value to somebody else uh, with that, with minimal effort for yourself. I'll be at going to the meeting. Not every clinician can do. So I get that. And if you're doing these two things at once, being a clinician and being a leader in these conversations, you got to take even better care of yourself. So you got the energy to do it. A hundred percent, as well as, you know, to recognize that you didn't create all of these problems. It's not your job to fix them all. You are allowed to exist and not rush to solve every problem. It's not a code all the time. And the last thing I'll say, if you really want to activate a superpower to supercharge your relationship with somebody on the management side of the business, if you can convince them to shadow you, Hmm. that would be amazing. I'll add one thing that's actually called management by walking around or management Mm -hmm. by wandering around. So it's taught in business schools. Again, learn their terminology, speak their language uh, and bring them to you if possible. 
Right on. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nahal. This is Dyke Drummond here. We've given you some tools, some tips about how to how to have conversations and begin a relationship where you can have some influence on people who are either across or above you on the chain of command. And until next time, just keep breathing. Have a great rest of your week and name your emotion. Don't become them. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Take care. 